Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Recorded generally uh, at the PW offices in New York, but but we're uh, um, uh, me and my co-host uh, Kate. We're at um, remote locations in New York City. I'm Calvin Reed, senior news editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com/slash/comics. And you can find us online on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to More to Come on iTunes and on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash pwcomicsworld. Okay, this week on More to Come, uh, comics and graphic novel sales. Also, we're going to look at John, Wrigley, John Ridley's uh, The Other History of DC, a new um, behind-the-scenes look at the social history of DC characters. Um, we're going to look at a couple of new, um, uh, newly inducted um, uh, inductees into the Will Eisner Hall of Fame, and we'll, uh, we're also going to take a take a we'll, we'll have a little report from the Uncle Lim, the Great European uh, Comics Festival. So, um, so let's just let you know, listeners, Heidi is not with us, as you may have noticed. Yes. Why? Because she is at Uncle Lim. Yes, she yes she had the good good fortune uh, to return. This is, I think, her second time uh, going to Angoulême. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, this is the really the the great. I mean, if you want to think of it in terms of something, you can the San Diego Comic Con of Europe. Uh, it's a, an annual festival takes over a medieval town in the south of France uh, for four or five days. It's truly extraordinary. I had a chance to go in uh, 2016 myself. Um, uh, it really, uh, we, we hear about the French loving comics until you go to Angoulême, you really don't understand the, the, the full impact of what that means. The French really love comics, all yeah. kinds of comics and, and it's reflected in Angoulême. So we'll have a report from Heidi on, on her, um, her first, first few days. At yes. Angoulême. And Angoulême is very scenic. It's, it's sort of, it's sort of like if France's San Diego Comic-Con were held in Sundance. Yes, like yes, that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very different kind of town than San Diego. That's for sure. Yeah. So no convention center. Yes, absolutely. So, um, but first, uh, let's take a look at um, comics and graphic novel sales. Um, uh, I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about the book market, but um, I mean, what are we seeing in the direct market? What we're seeing in the direct market is that um, it's not the best, but Marvel, while they had the number one book with Marvel Legacy, uh, they had a drop-off after that. Yeah. A very significant drop-off. And um, neither of the big two is having the strongest couple months ever. Uh-huh. Well, this seems to be a continuing story. Um, uh, I mean, DC has a couple of hits, apparently. I mean, Yeah, DC has, yeah. DC has a stronger mid-list. Mm-hmm. Whereas Marvel has way, way more t- titles in the 25,000 to 20,000 death range. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. I mean, those are titles most likely to be, uh, what, like canceled, aren't they? Whack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you anyway. have failed me. Well, yeah. I mean, they're the top levels. I mean, I mean, comics can get up around 70 or 80,000. Uh, comics well, can get up to 100,000. But they, they seem don't to do tend it to go much. above that. Far fewer than they used to do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they don't do it quite as often as they used to. Um, now, I have actually been reading Doomsday Clock, which is which is very interesting. I don't know if you've read it. 
Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Doomsday Clock well, is? Well, you know, it, it is essentially a sequel to a Watchmen. Um, uh, I'm, and just by saying that, I'm, a, I'm, I'm shocked that a lightning bolt from Alan Moore doesn't, you know, strike me to a crisp. You know, written by um, Jeff Johns, the uh, was the chief creative officer at uh, DC Comics, DC Entertainment. Uh, uh, I think the art's by Gary Frank. Um, and it's, uh, as Jeff Johns uh, showed in Rebirth, uh, he can, he's a very clever guy, and he can really stitch together um, disparate continuities. Uh, and so he, 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 this is, as I read it... Um, he's the crossover king. He's a crossover king, but and this isn't really, and in some ways, this is the ultimate crossover because he's stitching together the the universes of Watchmen with the DC universe. He is bringing them together. I mean, obviously, he started this in Rebirth, but and Doomsday Clock is really, um, uh, you know, the warped, the, the warped, mutated baby uh, <laughs> that has resulted. Uh, I mean, I don't know if, you know, I don't want to get, well, I don't want to give him any spoilers, but, you know, he's kind of set them up, and I guess this is a, a long-going legacy in DC Comics, that everything is a different world that you go to, and he has um, the characters from Watchmen crossing over into uh, the world of the DC Universe uh, to deal, to get them, to get the heroes of the DCU to save the doomed world, uh, uh, the doomed universe of Watchmen. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, uh, it has got very good artwork, uh, and you know we—it's com- pretty compelling. It, you know, once you start into it, you you do, uh, you know, it's hard not to um, follow these characters uh, that um, that Alan Moore has created and sort of have kind of exist frozen in time. So it's very interesting to see them. Moving, uh, moving through another universe. So, mm. um, but, but clearly, I'm not the only one who thinks this because you know that seems to be one of their best-selling comics. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the Doomsday Clock encountered the other Doomsday Clock. You see, the Bureau of Atomic Scientists has this thing called the Doomsday Clock oh, yes. that they started in 1947. And they adjust periodically, depending on how strong they feel the threat of nuclear war is. Now, spoiler alert, they always think it's strong, because it started at seven minutes to midnight, and it's never been less. I mean, it's never been safer. Yeah, right. It's always like, you know, we're it's always, always on the verge it's Always on the verge of doomsday, yeah. But um, they made it two minutes closer to midnight when Trump was elected, and now they have moved it one minute oh, great. closer to midnight so now we are oh so they're criticizing dc comics for like you know basically you know, like no 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 no, no 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 nope okay so okay the, sorry <laughs> right i didn't know about this sorry <laughs> so uh they moved the doomsday clock up 30 seconds and so we are perilous close to midnight now, right? So DC social media decided they were going to tweet, take your mind off the real doomsday clock with doomsday clock number three out now, which it concluded with a link of where to purchase the book. Uh, Unfortunately, um, 
it encountered a bunch of people on Twitter who were genuinely concerned about nuclear war and felt this was in poor taste. <laughs> I will. And so, um, yeah, the the hardcore anti-nuke people encountered the DC Comics social media people, and DC Comics social media people deleted the tweet and ran away and hid. Okay, well, maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't blame them. Personally, I don't find it deeply offensive. But then again, I don't actually think we're going to get blown up tomorrow. And I think it will be fine. So... Well, My approach is a little different, and I wouldn't maybe it wouldn't feel this way if I lived in Hawaii. Sorry, Hawaii. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. All right. And now that's enough doomsday clock. Yeah. Uh, well, I will say just to jump to the book market, um, uh, book scan numbers for 2017 uh, actually show graphic novel sales, a book format comics, down five uh, percent. Now. Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure how how to interpret that, what it means. Uh, and let's remember this. Graphic novel sales, uh, according to BookScan, for 2016 were up 11% over the year before. So uh, even with a drop of 5%, obviously we're living in a world that's awash in, in sales of graphic novels uh, more than, you know, any previous year. Um there certainly is something to be said about uh, a market um, responding to, you know, a giant leap. You know, I mean, a ten percent gain uh, in today's book world—it's it's pretty significant. It's pretty pretty significant. Um, uh, I think we're still in a period of adjusting to this new format. Uh, uh, I've also encountered over—we've uh, both encountered, and we've talked about it here on the show. Uh, both um, analysis by Kristen McLean. Uh, the executive at uh, um, at BookScan and others, including uh, Milton Greek, extremely optimistic about the, the graphic novel format uh, going into 2018. Uh, including um, uh, on the kids market side here at Publishers Weekly, we do a, a children's festival every year, every year called Global's Kid Connect, and uh, various panelists, which included Kristen McLean, also continued to be very optimistic about graphic novel sales. So we'll have to see what the future brings. But I, Now, to be clear, listeners, this yeah. is not a kids' comic festival for kids. No, no, no. This it, is a convention for book publishing professionals to discuss yes. what's going on on the, on the professional side, what's happening with markets, what's going on in libraries, what's going on in bookstores, what are publishers and agents looking to sign. So this, is, this isn't a convention. Yes, thank you for uh, making me clear, clarify that. <laughs> Uh, this is a professional conference, actually, uh, of book publishers who uh, talk about where the market for kids' book is going. And graphic novels were really continue to be singled out as one of the strongest and uh, uh, the strongest growth areas in kids' publishing. Uh, one of the other things I, I just would, I'd like to jump to just for a minute, and I'd like to go back to a discussion we had at a previous show, uh, really about Brian Hibbs talking yeah. about his year. And he's got two stores uh, in San Francisco, uh, one of which is his, his previous main store, which is very book-oriented, and another store that he added, which is more, as he puts it, you know, a, a, more clearly a direct market-style store where periodical sales uh, really um, uh, drive the sales there. And book sales 
at his main bookstore, as I recall, they were down 1% in 2017. Um, comics were down much more. Uh, and he really talked about excitement. Even though, the, the, even though he, it was a sluggish year overall for him, his most encouraging discussion and his mom, he was I shouldn't put he wasn't discouraged about the other store, but he was very encouraged about what he was seeing at the main store and the its emphasis. I think sixty percent of its sales were in books. Uh, uh, he has a you know he has a graphic novel book club uh, that does really well. Um, so I mean I think the the industry right now we have to remember this category and this format the book format is still really relatively new. It's really exploded, and I think there's going to be ups and downs in the market as the market absorbs all uh, absorbs, excuse me, absorbs all all this new um, product uh, and figures out, you know, how to how to get it to readers. Yeah, well, and you know, it's it's speaking of Hibs, like every little bit of margin counts because real estate in San Francisco is just so expensive now. Yes. Um, so much so that the Cartoon Art Museum lost its lease and is now reopening at a new location. Now, the new location has the advantage of being just off Ghirardelli Square and, you know, near Fisherman's Wharf. So it's really a great place for tourists and it seems like everyone won. But when even a museum can't keep its lease, that's some high prices right there. Yeah, well, that's the story of San Francisco. Um yeah. Without a doubt. All right. Um, well, from there, why don't we segue into an interesting announcement uh, from DC about um, John Ridley, uh, the uh, you know Oscar-winning uh, screenwriter for um, um, ah, what was the big slave? What was the movie? Uh, Twelve Years a Slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he also has another, uh, you know, side gig, you might say, uh, as a comics writer. Um, yeah, he has a long history as a comics writer. Yes, yes, he does. Uh, certainly, I think one of the more prominent things he's written was uh, The American Way, this kind of alternative history of the U.S. Uh, that included um, a new kind of group of superheroes, including an African-American superhero. And actually, I think he's actually doing a new volume. Yeah, The American, American Way, Those Above and Those Below, yes. is coming out from Vertigo. But uh, Ridley and DC Entertainment announced an interesting uh, news series that's going to kick off, I think, um, very soon. I can't remember exactly when uh, they're supposed to start. Uh, I think in the springtime. But it's called The Other History of the DC Universe. And he's going to be uh, writing, and they, they haven't announced any artists yet, but he's going to be announcing, um, uh, he's going to be exploring the social background of a whole range of DC uh, superheroes from, you know, basically from marginalized American communities. So he's going to look at, you know, Vixen and uh, John Stewart and Katana and Supergirl apparently as well and creating stories that are going to be based on the social experiences that produce these heroes. So, uh this is looks like a very interesting uh series. I mean, it's funny. I mean, for me as an old line superhero Reader, I mean, Marvel was always the the, the social, uh, um, the socially an, an, analytical um, superhero writer, and DC was still more more overtly fantasy oriented. But obviously, the, the roles of both of these publishers have have, um, have grown and changed and evolved over time. Well, I, I think DC tends to 
work more in mythic metaphor. Yes. Whereas Marvel tends to have like a lot of characters, personal lives yes. outside of the costumes being like, gosh, I just can't pay my rent. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, yeah. I think they both deal with these topics. They just DC tends to more have it, as I said, in like giant metaphor land. Yeah. Whereas uh, Marvel tends to have it more be the minutia of the characters' lives, and I think there's room for both. Yeah. Um, so, but I could see how this would be an interesting. Yeah, and, and I think what I think Marvel has really made this is this is kind of like really set the standard and and so the other i mean really if you really look across the board now almost all uh superhero comics producers want to produce comics that have some grounding in you know the personal challenges that their that their superheroes uh, face so but this looks like a real a real branded effort to really explore a whole range of you know um non main you know i i guess i, I mean it's maybe not uh, of superheroes from other kinds of communities. So yes. it's going to be interesting to see uh, how it plays out. The other thing that's interesting about this announcement was it was part of announcement of this event, DC in DC, that uh, basically a giant DC comics only convention held at the museum, which is the Museum of Journalism in Washington, DC, um, earlier this month, uh, which I found very interesting that the whole museum would give itself over to one comic book publisher well three days i think they could three days you can handle it um i sort of can kick myself because i wish i had known it was going on because i actually uh was on a very short vacation to washington dc with my parents earlier this month and if we had just moved it one weekend, we would have been there during oh, DC yeah. and DC. Because uh, it does sound pretty impressive. I mean, um, you know, there were films. Uh, I mean, they had a. Uh, uh, I think they screened like Black Lightning at the uh, the African American History and Culture Museum. You know, Ridley was down there to talk about you know about launching this line of book uh, uh, line of uh, of new comics. So uh, it really was a mini DC comics convention uh at the museum and 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 at other places in um other museums at dc so yeah you should too bad um speaking of things of african-american interest uh i currently live in brooklyn uh -huh. and i noticed a number of flyers up saying um indiegogo to support poor Black Brooklyn children going to see Black Panther. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Where you could tear off, like, you know, like Lost Cat or, like, uh -huh. Apartment uh -huh. for Rent. Okay. You could tear off the little Indiegogo tag and take yeah. it home. And I had already heard through comic circles of a, another larger successful one hmm. um, being run for Harlem children. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's just interesting that people are like passing the hat so that disadvantaged kids can see this movie when it comes out. Well, it's kind of what we talked about when we were talk talking about the Black Panther, I think, last week and um, or the last time we were all together. I mean, that movie is just completely energizing everybody. Oh, yeah, I know. But what I just meant is 
that was like yeah. I was walking around. It was like a tangible thing, like yeah, just in what, real what, life. Just you just walk past yeah. a telephone pole. I, and it's I, like, I heard go to my Indiegogo. I had heard some celebrities were also funding sending you know kids kids, kids to see uh, black kids and other kids to see uh, Black Panther. Black Panther. So um, yeah. So yeah. Um, and on that note, let's um, well, let's move on to our next item. Uh, the Will Eisner Hall of Fame uh, announced yeah. its latest automatic inductees and um uh the two individuals are um the late uh carol kalish a, a former marvel comics direct sales manager uh and jackie orms the first black female syndicated newspaper cartoonist they're going to be automatically inducted into the uh, will eisner hall of fame at the san diego comic-con uh, uh and at the will eisner uh, industry uh, comics industry awards in july um, for those who may not know, Kara Kalish uh, was uh, – she's credited uh, – she was an editor, uh, a comics retailer, and then she worked for many years as a, as a uh, manager of the direct sales market at Marvel Comics. And she's credited with really supporting the development of the direct sales market as we know it today, the comic shop market, during her early years, creating programs that would help retailers – uh, survive and to grow in a in a new retailing environment. Uh, and Jackie Orms is a legendary black uh, female cartoonist. Uh, she had a, a she started a a comic strip called Dixie in Harlem uh, that first appeared in the Pittsburgh Courier uh, in 1937. This was the black one of the black newspapers of the time. Uh, and and the the uh, comic strip star Torchy Brown uh, a, a a, a female uh, and stylish female black heroine who uh, went for adventures all over the place. And so uh, congratulations uh, to the, the families and the estates of both of them. Yeah, uh, and that wasn't her only comic either. You know, um, there were other things too. She she then did uh, Candy, which was a single panel humor strip. Cool. Uh, Patty, Joe, and Ginger, oh, which yeah. was... Another single panel strip and it also for, ran doll. for 11 years. It and then like a doll, too. She was early merchandising. Yes. And then, in a final merchandising coup, she brought Torchy back uh, for Torchy in Heartbeats in the 50s, which was an eight-page comic insert, including Paper Doll. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, she, she was an innovator, really. She was, indeed. She was indeed. Uh, now these two are were are were selected by the judges, and they will be automatically um, inducted into the Eisner Eisner Hall of Fame. But the Hall of Fame uh, vote uh, also includes uh, 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 nominees who are voted in. So there were sixteen uh, nominees this year, of and, which six are women. Uh, yeah. Okay. Good. 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 Because I actually did not count it up, so I didn't know that. Uh, and I don't have all of the names in front of me. But I have them. Some, okay. Well. Good. Go ahead. Go ahead then. Now, a lot of these names I recognize, and some of them I admit I don't. And right. Calvin, you can fill our listeners when, in. So we've I got. Can, I will. Okay. Go so we've got Charles Adams. Sure. He of the Adams family yes. cartoons. Yes. Those of you who only know it from the movies or the television shows, there were some hilarious, wonderful uh, comic strips. You should read them. They're awesome. Um, Jim Aparo. Don't know him. Yeah. Gus Ariola, Don't know him. Karen Berger. The well, we famous know, we know who Karen Berger Vertigo is sure. editor. Harold Cruz. 
Heracles is, is really the the, the great um, uh, underground gay comics uh, artist. Uh, uh, his best one of his best known works is Stuck Rubber Baby. Oh, really, he was Stuck Rubber Baby. A, oh, okay. A pioneering work uh, uh, that looked at the um, uh, both the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement in the 1960s. Uh, really a great work, and he's a uh, much-deserved uh, nominee. Carlos Esquera. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dave Gibbons. Well, we all know Dave Gibbons. Yes. Mm-hmm. Paul Levitz. Yes. Mm-hmm. The former, former president of DC Comics. Yes, I mean, he's definitely a a historical figure. Yes, and he's um, a writer and an and he's editor a writer. as well. He's a, he's yep. a comics writer, but he's also a, a, you know, a, a historian, a teacher... Um, Tarpe Mills, Francois Mouly, who is um, currently the, and has been for many years, the art and comics director at The New Yorker. Yes, and, um, she, and she's a co-editor of The Raw and the wife of, uh, of Art Spiegelman. Yeah, I didn't think art needed a mention here. Art gets mentioned <laughs> enough. That's right. Thomas Nash. The, the 19th century cartoonist. Yes. Yes. He's a little late to be. I was like, Thomas he's Nash, right he's yes, been he dead right for an awful long time. Mm-hmm. He's not already in there? Yeah. Uh, Lily Renee Peter Phillips, Posey Simmons, Rumiko Takahashi. Yeah. And Posey yeah. Simmons, of course, is a great, uh, you know, a British uh, cartoonist, mm. graphic novel artist. Yeah. John Wagner and S. Clay Wilson. Yeah. The, uh, of, the, uh, of the underground comics. Yeah, well, I will be rooting very hard for Rumiko Takahashi, for um, Karen Berger, and for Charles Adams. I think they all all richly deserve a place Rumiko Takahashi should have also been in... uh, Yeah, yeah, she should have been in there a long time ago. And frankly, Posey Simmons as well. Um, uh, Great, and on that note, um uh we well we are we're going to have a a recorded report uh from uh, uh Heidi McDonald and Angolem but we'd like to congratulate actually Richard Cor- Corbin the great um uh underground cartoonist uh who was who won the Grand Prix d'Angoulême this is the great this is the the grand prize of the uh of the Angoulême festival so congratulations to him uh, you may know him from Heavy Metal. That's right, from Heavy Metal. Uh, he's done works like Din. He's uh, he's he's done work uh, uh, in Slow Death, Grim Wit. Uh, worked in the fa- the anthology Fantagore. Um, he's really done everything. He's certainly been one of the great artists um, and inspirations to me. So. Um, Congrats he leans to heavily toward the sci-fi yes. and yeah, well-endowed ladies' end. Yes, he does. Which, which is, which is not a dig. No, it's not. It's no, a taste. It is, yeah, that's fine. He, he has, but uh, he's just a great talent. So uh, it's good to see him uh, uh, recognized, and he's been big, big in France for many years. So, um, so we are going to segue to Heidi in Angoulême. Uh, bonjour et more to come. Uh, le podcast de la Publishers Weekly. Well, that was my horrible mishmash of language, but welcome to more to come. Uh, this week from Angoulême, Francais. Uh, I'm Heidi McDonald. I am uh, the podcast component of uh, Publishers Weekly, as well as the editor-in-chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com. So, yes, I'm here from the press 
castle. It is, the, I, I, it's been four years since I was here at Angoulême. I believe it was me and Bridget Alverson when we, the moment we first set eyes on the press room, we became uh, amazed. It's, it's the splendor. It's a medieval uh, 20 foot ceilings. No, more than that, 30 foot? Yeah. I'm here with Chris Thompson, who is the brand manager for Static. You're in marketing at Titan Comics, correct? Yes. All right. Yep. Uh, now, I first met Chris four years ago here in this very room, and I was a guest on his podcast, which is called Pop Culture Hound. Right? Yeah. Right? So we thought we'd turn the tables this year as we're both reunited. So there's there's a little bit of hubbub here in the press room, so um, hopefully you can discern our scintillating conversation. Um, so, Chris, four years ago, you were... What were you doing four years ago? So four years ago, I was the events manager at Orbital Comics, which I, I guess, you know, involved marketing as, as well. And uh, so I would organize the signings and the gallery exhibitions and different things we had going on. Uh, yeah, quite, quite a different world. So I was heavy in the, the comics retail side and uh, Angoulême was always a, a destination for me, you know, so uh, it, it became part of my annual, uh, you know, Schedule. Of <laughs> that was your that was your first Angle That was my first oh, so one. We yeah, were both, we were both here for the first yeah. time. Yeah, um, and and I think on that first podcast, um, you we were just comparing notes and, and shock and surprise. I will say the press room is still probably the highlight for me. Oh yeah, I, I mean there's free coffee here, fresh coffee right from the uh, spigot. So. Uh, bear that in mind other conventions <laughs> well I, I and in fact I remember you saying that on uh, my one when we, we spoke last time you were basically sort of everyone should take a leaf out of the, mm -hmm. the book of the, the organizers here at Angoulême because there's free coffee all day long but then you know when you get sort of later into the afternoon polite times there's free cognac yes yes they, and uh, you know they keep you happy and uh, for lunch I just bought a uh, one of the baguette sandwiches of Jamon uh, uh, a, 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 a ham and Swiss, but it's just so much better the way the French do it. So, uh, props to the lunch. So, Chris, how long ago did you leave Orbital? So, it was almost a year and a half ago. I, I only just realized that in talking to someone the other day. So, end of February, it'll basically have been a year and a half since I left and since joining Titan. Okay, and what made you want to leave the, you know, what was the, what was it you came to Titan to do? Oh, <laughs> well, the thing is, it, I mean, I guess addressing the what, what made me leave and, and what brought me to Titan, they're, they're very closely related. So in the grand scheme of things, I never wanted to leave. I love comics retail. I'm 100% invested in it, and I, I still am. I'm just sort of on the other side and, and trying to help in a different way. But at Orbital, I, I saw what good work we were doing, what good work had been done, and essentially I just wanted it to be recognized, and I, I realized that, we were so close. We were ticking so many boxes for what they were looking for for the Eisen Award and recognizing that. And a couple of years before we won, I, I thought there's a few things we need to do more of, you know, working more with libraries, doing things like that. And so I started actually just, you know, approaching libraries, giving talks oh, and different things. Yes, the libraries. Yeah. You know, so uh, I, I wouldn't call it mercenary, but there was certainly a, a plan in place to. Um, to address the, the, the shortcomings and, and to make the store more well-rounded. And so, you know, I spent a couple of years doing that. And yeah, so 2016, I, I had the pleasure of being in San Diego, being able to 
collect the award for the shop. Mm -hmm. Yes, it won the Will Eisner Spirit of Retailing Award that yes. year. Yes, yeah. So that was that was a huge privilege. Uh, even just making it to, you know, I, I mean, nominations uh, were, were great, but you can nominate yourself, which is, is what I've done. Uh, however, actually getting to be a finalist was you know, already enough. Uh, let alone winning. I, I didn't you know, know that was going to happen for us. But the, I, I had this terrible realization actually as I got off the plane in San Diego and arrived, I got the notification that we were finalists and it just hit me. It was like, that's the, that's the end of it for you, Chris. You, you, there's nothing more you can do there. The shop wasn't actually mine. I didn't own it. There was nothing more to sort of achieve at that stage. It was like, I, I need the next challenge. Ah, yes. And so it was a bittersweet awesome. moment because it's sort of, you know, in, in doing so well at my job, I kind of negated it. <laughs> uh, which I, I guess is, is the best thing you can do, but also the worst if it's something you love. And so it was, how do I take that to the next stage? And so actually uh, at San Diego, I went and spoke to the, the folks at Titan and, and was like, what do you think? You know, is, is there room? Is, is there something I can do here? Because I, I feel like, you know, I've tackled the retail side, but going to publishing, there was a lot more to be able to do and to be able to work with retailers still and help them. So I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm working from a different side, but I still very much work with retail and comics retail and I, I believe in uh, the direct market. Yeah. Well, you know, I just remembered another funny thing about that year is that yeah. I was one of the judges. Yes, you were. Yeah, and, and I remember we were on a panel together. And so the judging takes place Tuesday during the day. Yeah. And we did pick Orbital as the winner. And then you and I were on a panel Thursday morning. And you were so excited about the award. And I had to bite my tongue. Like, I had to, because uh, of course they weren't announced till Friday night. And I remember being like, oh, God, don't let it slip. Don't let it slip. Don't. I think I yeah. might have said something like, oh, I think you got a good shot or something like that. But yeah, I, I'm terrible at keeping secrets. So, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, oh, I remember. Certain secrets. Certain secrets. <laughs> yes. It, it was so weird because um, at, the, at the panel, you, you didn't say much to me at all. And I was like, <laughs> strange. Heidi's just kind of basically ignoring me. I was, I was like, that's. Yeah, that was because I was you know, terrified but, of letting uh, it. Yeah. And and then on the Friday night afterwards, you came up to me and, uh, yeah, you were like, I'm sorry, you know, I just couldn't say anything. I, I didn't trust myself and yes, yes, uh, yes, it all yes. made sense. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, well, you know, I want to ask you a little a little about Orbono because I, I do remember as a judge, you know, you would like, you, basically as a spirit of retailing, um, the store is required to submit a package that shows yeah. their their outreach and their press. And everything. I mean, it's a quite an extensive, you know, some... The day of judging was long. There was quite a few uh, stores, 20 stores or so that we had to go through. So it was quite a taxing day. Um, and, you know, Orbital Abbasi had a great presentation. Uh, several shops did, though. Yeah. But uh, but you, did, I think the things the judges were looking for was what a store that really was very well-rounded. And Orbital absolutely had a um, reputation, though, for being, in London, really a store that had fantastic events, obviously. Yep. Um, credit to you and but like a wide range of 
the kind of material that you promoted, right? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just superhero stuff. No, no, no. No, I mean, uh, that's one of the great things about the shop. We had, uh, I say we, you know, it's, it's like in, in my head, I'm, yeah. I'm still there uh, and, you know, always will be. But uh, yeah, we, we have such a great selection. Even when you look at a comic shop, what they put up front and what they present when you first walk into it, to me, that says what kind of a shop they are. So you go to some and it's just merch and toys and whatever. You walk into Orbital and there's your comics front and center, right up front. Uh, and, and yeah, we always sort of, you know, we would sit in the meetings discussing what we're gonna order from the previous catalog. And, and it was always about having a diverse range. And it wasn't just, you know, Marvel DC or, you know, top five publishers or whatever. We would really look for interesting stuff and things that we could sell. I mean. The, the problem of the direct market is everything is firm sale, so you have to be so careful about it. But I think we were committed, and you know, I, I still am to to hand selling and that idea of promoting the things that you like and that are valuable and, and that are good. And uh, you would walk into Orbital for for those who haven't been in. We had a side room that we would call the West Wing, where you would, it, it, it's perfect, you know, and, and it, it is actually to the West as, as well. And uh, in there you would find sort of the, the less standard super, you know, non-superhero fare. So you could find all your mainstream publishers out on the floor, but then in there you had all your other publishers as well as a huge small press section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, actually, um, another former Orbital employee is uh, Rosie Marks. Yes who uh, wrote a really great series for The Beat about selling material. Uh, you know, uh, she was she was working there, and, you know, hand-selling and that sort of thing. We're like, what, you know, how to do that kind of outreach. So, exactly. obviously, you know, a, a big, uh, that was a big focus of what, yeah. and what they still do. So. And, and she was great at that, you know. It was like, it, being able to relate to customers where they're at, finding, you know, what it is that they like in other spheres, and then being able to connect them to the right comics. You know, it's, it's kind of a joy. It's that, that's and, and that was the great thing is everyone had specialties. Like I think everyone's pretty good across the board. But you know, if there would be someone to cover any topic and any kind of customer there. And and I feel though that even in the past four years, like even four years ago, I feel like like it's just gotten so much better and easier in comics. Like like so much great material yeah. has come out. And uh, in the past. You know, in 2017, like the big breakout book was my favorite thing is Monsters, which is a I mean, we've talked about it endlessly on this podcast, so I won't I won't. But but I mean, just this kind of out of left field, hard to describe, uh, and yet it instantly brilliant book about child. You know, it's like have to kill a mockingbird, really, except mm. Chicago, and uh, yeah, I mean, just the range of material. Yeah, and. Um, uh, that is available, but let's you know now segue segue time. Yes. So the Statics Press. Okay. Yeah. Now we also just wrote about this on the beat, and we did a whole week of previews. So cross cross promo. Uh, check out the Beats uh, Statics Weeks because we have like pre previews of the books that you have coming out. But what what is Statics Press? So Statics Press is the imprint for. I, I mean, I would say World Comics at Titan. So, uh, you know, Titan Comics has been known for putting out translated material for years now. And, and I mean, even going back to when Titan very first started and they were doing, you know, 
reprints of 2000 AD and, and putting together things that hadn't been collected back in the 80s. They were doing Mobius and Bilal and, you know, some of those editions are still the only versions available in English. Uh, right, they're impossible right. to get. Yes. You know, the, the I have most of the Mobius ones and... Uh, I, you know, I treasure them, but they're worth a fortune. And trying to get the ones I don't have, mm -hmm. I, I was actually sort of sniffing around the offices, trying to see if there was any of them around, <laughs> so I could fill them my gaps. Uh, and, and there are not; they're, they're you know, rare as hen's teeth. Uh, but so we we wanted to build on that history, but in terms of actually being able to really market it and present it to people. We needed to have an umbrella it came under because there was a lot of good books that were just sort of right. slipping under the radar. And it was like, what, what do we do? Uh, and so uh, internally we'd been pushing for a while that, that we needed an imprint in, in which to uh, you know, sort of house all this. And so Statics Press was born, mm -hmm. uh, finally. So I think the first actual book under that banner came out... I want to say it was September uh, 2017. Right, it did. It was just announced last year. Yeah. And um, but as you say, Titan has a has quite a legacy, uh, like Snowpiercer, yes. obviously, yes. which has kind of become a, a neo classic, really. Uh, and uh, the Death of Stalin as well, yeah. which is a, a motion picture. I guess it's coming out in the United States uh, just this year. But yeah, um, yeah it, and, and and I kind of joked with you when we were talking before. But I mean, it does. It is a little unusual, maybe, uh, to have you know an English publisher, you know, doing more francophone comics like that. <laughs> but it, it is the you know the audience yeah. is really just expanded in that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, it's you know. It's not Brexit for everybody, so, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited that we can it's be Brexit. doing... <laughs> yeah. yeah, get in, you know, everybody, but, uh, I, yeah, I think it's, it's good. I mean, ideally, I would love to see us presenting other stuff, so I'm, I'm always sort of careful to say it's our World Comics imprint. I think there's room to bring other material out, but uh, there, there's a lot of European stuff in there. Because the European market for comic is, uh, comics is yes, huge. They, it is. They bring out, I mean, what was the, the stats they were saying that we, in that presentation this oh, morning? Is it something like 2,000 new volumes a year? Yeah, I actually jotted that down. Uh, it, it, it actually, it said that 5,300 comics were in print in France uh, and that 4,500 in the United States and Japan. So, you know, the, the francophone, yeah, market is yeah. absolutely immense. And, and then the numbers that they do, like they, they were sort of talking about compared to other forms of, you know, right. basically other types of books. So, you know, comics were selling it's something second like, to regular yeah, fiction. Right, it is the second biggest uh, genre in France in, the, in publishing after as you say, general fiction, which is the, yeah. the, the largest, and, and in which the United I States. Um, yeah, so they, they love their comics. But I, 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 I think, um, but it did also show that U.S. comics are like the fastest growing segment in Europe, yeah. which is a little hometown pride, you know, uh, here. I do think we're doing, and not, not just the, the main, you know, the superhero stuff, but um, mm. some of the material that is being published in yeah. a lot of different genres. Exactly. I think, you know, obviously because of the internet and the, the fact that we're all connected now, the walls are breaking down in that regard, and people are a lot less about, well, these are comics, this is based. This is manga. It, you know, it's it's less about those categories, and it's all comics, whatever you call it, where you're.
were from, but it's essentially globally it's being just embraced as all the, the same thing, which, right. which is, is great. So you sort of just have this global comics market. Right. And they, I, oh, yeah. go on. No, I was just going to say, which, which I, I love. I mean, it gets me so yeah. excited. And it is, it is the, like, I think uh, just the boundaries are, are breaking down so much. And even mm. at, like here at Angoulême, I, I will say that the English-speaking contingent is really growing here. And, um, you know, more and more I've run into, uh, like, Chris Butcher from TCAF uh, mm. and Viz. I uh, saw him at the cafe last night. And uh, Chip Mosier and Ivan Salazar from Comixology. But, you know, Emma Haley from Self-Made Hero mm -hmm. is here. Uh, Rebellion is here. Um, you know, a bunch of English people. But IDW is here at the Wrights Tent where, where yeah. I was hanging out earlier. It's bustling with, uh, with publishers from around the world. Yeah. So, so what is it that you do here, though? What brings you here? To Angoulême? Yeah. Comics. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a really pat and terrible answer. Yeah. But, uh, I, I mean, I would come here no matter what. Uh, having, you know, when I, I came uh, four years ago, so this is my fifth time here now, mm -hmm. uh, and that was my first. And I've been every year since, and I, I plan to be here every year uh, going forward because it's my palate cleanser for the year. You know, uh, I love comics, but after the year, you, you know, it's, they're always long years. They can be a little bit, you know, draining. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's so much... Um, negativity so many things that, that bring you down and you know when I go into a new year I need that palate cleanser that excites me about it again like I never lose the passion but sometimes it's a little dulled a little bit dim and, and I need that uh, energizing and that's what Angoulême does for me oh wow um, honestly does you know and, and so I end up uh, picking up different things that I want for myself you know that that's inevitable I always spend more money than than I intend I always have more drinks with people than I intend I, I make new friends I catch up with old ones it's yeah it's great but increasingly it's also work mm -hmm. uh, yes. and and so it's it's one of the places where I can you know if they say are you here for business or pleasure I can genuinely say both uh, yes. to, to you know sort of the nth degree uh, when I was with Orgdal, it was very much about spreading the word about the shop and, and that, you know, it became sort of a global presence that this independent shop in London would be known, you know, beyond. And I think we've achieved that. And now with Titan and particularly with having the, the statics imprint that people are starting to recognize and actually be able to uh, latch on to uh, promoting that and then meeting basically my French counterparts here and, and tying in with them and going right how do we spread the word about this stuff further and, and you know there's a, a lot more uh, cooperation happening you know talking to the guys from Casterman about uh, Snowpiercer as you mentioned before they've got the, the TV series coming up and it's yes, like sorry. right how do we get people back to the source material yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's inspired these other productions and, and I think would inspire the people that watch it, but it's just getting them back to it. Yeah. Going, yeah. you know, you, you need to see where this came from because it's brilliant. Well, you know, I just, I, I don't know if you know about this, but I just actually checked my email before I came here and I had an email from someone at Titan talking about a show, a book that's been turned into a Netflix show. Yeah, yeah. What is that? Okay, so uh, Babylon Berlin is, is the name of the book. And uh, it's, it's an interesting one because it's a German creator and uh, it is actually under the hard case crime imprint. Yes. Uh, it, you know, it, it sort of 
it, it could have been a statics book, but it also had that very sort of natural fit with uh, the hard case crime line that, that we've been doing, and Charles Arde, who, who oversees that, you, you know, it, it really fits their, uh, their style. But uh, yeah, Babylon Berlin has uh, been picked up for Netflix and is about to start soon. I, so you haven't seen the trailer? For no. It, so is it on Netflix in the UK or in the US? Uh, US. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like I, I don't think it started yet. No, it says it's starting. I think it's coming. For, I, I think it is. It also Netflix, to be fair, has so many shows, and yeah. they don't all, like they don't always promote the heck out of them. I mean, speaking of comics, I was fascinated to see they did the end of the blanking world. By yeah. John, which was shown in England first yeah. on Netflix mm. and apparently was which is based on the comic book of the same name published by Fantagraphics but I mean it's a small press book and, and yeah, apparently yeah. the show has actually been a real sleeper hit for Netflix I've seen people talking about it all the time mm. so you know like I don't think people knew beforehand it was coming out so maybe Babylon Berlin is you know another sleeper hit I think so there is that weird thing with Netflix where people just sort of see it and, and start talking about it when it's actually out there their uh, pre-marketing or pre-promotion is either non-existent or just very strange and yeah. you know it, it sort of escapes yeah, everyone well, it's uh, you know far be it from us to criticize Netflix but uh, anyway or, yeah, or, hey um, I mean it works you know and, and in that regard it is one of those things where you know, it's, it's not like a book where you have to have pre-promoted it to get the sale so it's in stores that people can go and buy it. This, it's just on Netflix, as many people that want to watch it can go and just do it straight away. So it's not relying on that. Whereas for books, we're having to determine print runs based on pre-sales and actually you, you can't just have that word of mouth when something's out. Right, right, which, right. Which is terrible. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love that. You know, imagine if you, you know, when I look at some of the books, the, the reviews we get later on, uh, you know, I wish we'd printed more. But <laughs> yeah, but it's, you, it's you, always you, the way. Yeah, it's, it's a real balancing, balancing act with yeah. publishing. Um, well, uh, you know, a couple of other things that just, we're, we're sort of free me here. We're, I, I'm super jet lagged and, um, you know, we already have con lag here, but, uh, you know, one thing that has changed since uh, the last time I was here is now they have the magic mirror. Yeah, now you mentioned this well, before magic, and I haven't well, seen it. Uh, the magic mirror is apparently this area, it's near the press room, but it's a special place for young creators to hang out. Right. Yeah, and it's called the magic mirror. I don't know, uh, Jean from, uh, Jean Pachouli from um, uh, Glenat was trying to explain it to me and he was like, I'm doing a very bad, it's called the magic mirror. And <laughs> Okay. I couldn't understand, but yes, I, I'm going to go check out that later on. Uh, and I know some people are doing talks there, but um, I'm eager to see this magic mirror. Yeah. Well, and, and it's got mirrors all around. I, I always assumed it was a, a mirror maze because I have heard them say something about, you know, it, it being for, for young people. But I thought it was more like, okay, kids go in and, you know, there's, there's like, you know, this one makes you look fat, this one makes you look skinny, oh. this one makes you tall. Oh. But I, I think I'm just judging it on the exterior as opposed to what is actually inside. Well, we got to figure this out. we got to explore yeah. this magic mirror phenomenon. Um, uh, what else other shows are you looking forward to seeing here? Any other exhibits that you're going to check out? Oh, well, the, the Suzuka one. Yes. Ob yes. Obviously. Um, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. The uh, Kosi exhibition. Oh, yes, Kosi. Incredible. Uh, yeah. Uh, he is the uh, the Grand Prix winner. He's the president of the, this year's festival. Um, yeah. 
Uh, I, I was actually in uh, my favorite comic shop in Paris, which is uh, Apum Bapum, mm -hmm. and I was chatting with uh, Vladimir, the, the guy who runs the store there, or at least I think he runs the store mm -hmm. there. Could be one of the other guys, would be very annoyed <laughs> I said that, and he'd be like, it's my store, mm -hmm. but uh, he had helped with the curation and putting together the Cozy exhibition. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's uh, there's so much to see here. Uh, you know, I, I, I will say there's always been kind of this mystique about how it's impossible to come to Angoulême, and it's certainly possible. You just get on the plane, yeah. and you get on the train, you come, and then you have to find a place to stay, which is a little more difficult. But it's you can do it, you know. So I do encourage people who I a lot of people say, oh, it's my dream to come. Well, follow that dream. Yes. You will find it uh, a a quite an experience so well, and, and with Airbnb now it's very easy to find a place because it used to be pretty much the best way to stay here is with locals mm -hmm. and, and they open up their houses but it, it used to be that you had to know someone to put you in touch and, right, and then you get right. the hookup but now essentially the people that want to do it that don't already have existing guests that stay with them every year advertise on Airbnb so it's it's actually it's, it's never been easier to be right. able to and you don't feel as guilty when it's Airbnb like you know if you yeah. were staying in somebody's kitchen uh, even if they were charging you you might feel oh you know they need the money but now it's like oh it's Airbnb it's awesome yeah. they need the money yeah it just yeah. it changes the whole the whole and, and complexion in terms of you know the, the cultural experience you are literally staying with locals so there's, there's nothing better yeah, yeah. I, and I, that's what I love well the locals are quite there's a lot of local traditions here that are really interesting. Uh, I had some cheese. I've had some amazing cheese, but then there's apparently a ham specialty that did not. It's a little too funky. They have a funky ham that they like here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So beware the funky ham. But other than that. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think it's the one I had yesterday. They also have sort of their own variations on salamis and things. Yes also very funky and I, I sort of I, I opened this packet I bought yesterday to have on the train and I'm smelling it and I'm like this is terrible this is like uh... yeah I, I, I was trying to think of how to say wet sock in French uh, but, but yeah I, I, I didn't come up with the answer by the way but yes. uh, that, that was what it smelled like it was terrible and yeah. it tastes great but you still sort of there's a correlation between smell and taste and I'm like how is it that I cannot to handle the smell yet somehow I'm still eating this yes well once you just you just you know cold your nose and you eat it and it all goes on yeah. very well so when in France yes absolutely um, well Chris uh, thank you so much for your time uh, it's thank really you. nice to turn the tables here and yeah. um, check out Stat Express and uh, there are many fine I'm probably I'll see you at San Diego this year I really hope so. All yeah. right. Well, it's, it's overdue to come yeah, back. Somewhere along the trail, we shall meet again. So, until uh, next time, there'll be more to come. And that was great, Calvin. Yeah, absolutely. And now the news briefs. T Boy, um, the uh, Vietnamese woman, uh, the, the Viet Vietnamese American woman, uh, who wrote, uh, who created the best we could do the graphic memoir uh, published by Abrams Comics Art about uh, her family's harrowing journey from uh, wartime Vietnam to the United States has been nominated uh, uh, for um, the National Book Critics Circle Award uh, in the autobiography category. Congratulations uh, to T-Boy. Uh, the National Book Critics Circle is uh, the other great American Book Publishing Award alongside the National Book Awards. 
and it's um, it'll be awarded uh, in March at a ceremony here in New York City. So it was the only graphic novel, uh, you know, nominated um, by the NBCC. So uh, so um, much much congratulations to T Boy and to Abrams. Yes. So as you may know, listeners, um, DC has an important anniversary coming up. Action Comics 1000, which is the thousandth issue of Action Comics, the title that brought on Superman. There are two notable things that they have now announced, which is that Brian Michael Bendis, the very popular long-running Marvel writer who has just switched over to DC in November, has announced that his uh, DC debut will be in Action Comics 1000, which will be an anthology issue. Um, And so it will be him, and the illustration will be by DC Comics co-publisher and 90 superstar artist Jim Lee. But, but he will be in good company and indeed outshined by the fact that there will be an unpublished Siegel and Schuster story in it as well. 12 page. Uh, which has an interesting bit of backstory behind it that really reads like what was going on here, we don't even know. In that somehow or other there was a 12-page Siegel and Schuster story that DC never got around to publishing. And they say, oh, well, sometimes DC would hand out art to to visiting children and tourists. Well, somehow or other, a young Marv Wolfman took the tour and somehow laid hands on this 12-page story, which is a great deal longer than just one piece of art, may I tell you. Somehow, somehow this came into the hands of Mark Wolfman, and he sat on it for years. For decades. (laughs) And, but he has, he has brought it out from his archives, and it will now finally see the light of day. Thank you at long last. Yeah, uh, pretty, but that should be very interesting yeah. to see. Look, if I could just throw one other thing. I mean, there's going to be a periodical issue of this, but there's also going to be a you know a 400-page hardcover edition of this also that um, yes. should be really special. This is going to include essays by Paul Levitz, by Jules Pfeiffer, uh, novelist Tom DeHaven, the, uh, the great comics uh, and pop culture historian David Haydu, Gene, uh, Gene Yang, as well as collections of stories, um, from over the years. So this is, you know, it's it's going to be a periodical issue, but it's also going to be sort of a landmark deluxe hardcover also. So that'll also be out in April. So after 10 years, 10 years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they finally are actually moving toward creating a Black Widow movie. They are hiring... Uh, screenwriter Jack Schaefer, now that's Jack J-A-C, she's female, who uh, cool. wrote Timer mm-hmm. and has uh, written a number of blacklist screenplays. Now, when you say blacklist, you may think, oh, nobody wants to watch it. It's the other blacklist. There's a blacklist of screenplays that people in Hollywood think are amazing but which have not been made into movies yet. Mm-hmm. She's one of those people. Cool. So they've hired her to make black widow the script and then marvel will decide whether or not to produce it cool marvel make this movie yes another studio is already making quote-unquote red sparrow starring jennifer lawrence you can you can see listeners my little air quotes as i say 
Red Sparrow, <laughs> which is also about a young Russian woman uh, trained to deceive and take on other identities in order to be a spy. The directors swear up and down they have never heard of Black Widow and have no idea what anyone's talking about. But um, we don't believe them. <laughs> we don't believe them because it's it's got color name, animal name, and the same basic profile. Yeah, come on, guys. Um, not that that will in any way stop or the need for a Black Widow movie, but I think maybe, maybe seeing someone else making their own off-brand Black Widow movie with a big-name star, I mean, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, may have maybe lit a fire under Marvel. So it's been a bit of a slow week here in the United States for comics, but uh, there will be definitely more to come.